Attention listeners, Astrology Hotline is at war. At war with unanswered astrology questions. We have the weapons, we have the training, but to achieve ultimate victory, we need your help. I want you to take out your phone, open up Apple Podcasts, subscribe to Astrology Hotline, crush all five stars, and rain down a righteous review of furious satisfaction. I want you to open up Spotify, subscribe to Astrology Hotline, and launch one high-speed thumb of flaming death at that five-star rating. And I want you to find the gnarliest, most insidious astrology question you can find. Email it to astrologyhotlinepod at gmail.com so we can slaughter it mercilessly on the show. Together, we can conquer astrology one question at a time. Hello, welcome to Astrology Hotline, where we answer birth chart and astrology questions submitted by listeners. And if you have a question you'd like to hear answered on Astrology Hotline, go ahead and shoot us an email at astrologyhotlinepod at gmail.com. I'm Kyle Pierce, and hosting with me today is Tristan Paler. Hello, everyone. It is uh, July 25th, 2021. Uh, Sagittarius is rising here in uh, Michigan. i Assume in Ontario as well. Yep. We have a couple of questions here uh, that we're going to go over today. We want to go ahead and get started, or do you have any um, groundbreaking news to share, Tristan? I don't think I have any groundbreaking news, so I'm happy to go ahead and introduce our first question. All right. Fire away. So Maggie wants to know how she can shift from being such a fixed sign to a person with more creativity or fluidity. She also says she has changed a lot in the last few years, and she wants to know how charts uh, account of deep personality changes as the result of trauma or trauma recovery. The first thing I notice is that Maggie is a Gemini rising, and I absolutely love that we got two questions in one from a Gemini rising <laughs> is symbolically perfect and that there's a bit of a paradox between these questions <laughs> Yeah, and that they both have to do with change. So this is the Gemini hour. Sagittarius may be rising <laughs> where we are, but Gemini is rising in spirit here. I guess we could be considered the other in this context. Yeah. Uh, We're so, the descendant. Yeah. <laughs> The wise Sagittarian Jupiter-ruled descendant. So Maggie's chart isn't actually overly fixed. There's a really good balance of all the modes in this chart. There's even you know Mercury in Gemini being right on the ascendant, which is probably the most adaptable, flexible placement I could imagine in astrology. That is right. So on I there. think there's a lot of yeah, it's really there. Um, there's lots of potential for creativity and fluidity in this chart, but there are a couple of things I see that could slow it down. I think one of them would be that opposition between the moon and cancer and Saturn and Capricorn happening in the second and eighth houses. Yeah. Um, alongside the, the first house ruler, which just real quick, just give a general overview of uh, Maggie's chart here. He's Gemini rising. Mercury at about 20 degrees, right on the ascendant at about 19 degrees, sun in Taurus, and moon in Cancer, like you said. 
But the moon, you know, that's a really important general indicator for the person. Let's say, you know, sometimes the moon shows up more as other people, but like, I feel like almost consistently, even like in day charts, the moon saying something about the individual. Yeah. Yeah. That's one where, I mean, I've been learning so much about traditional astrology where the planets tend to represent people or events more so than they represent the owner of the chart. But I still find the sun and moon really consistently say something about someone's personality, regardless of, you know, the other things they also indicate in a chart. Yeah. The whole, I mean, the whole chart ends up, it's a digression, but (laughs) the whole chart does end up (laughs) describing personality. uh, It's like, those are like developments, which, you know, maybe we'll get into as we're talking about like personality change, but yeah. um, the first house ruler is kind of like your 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 baseline, like your mm-hmm. like main mode of operating. Yeah, and the thing you have the most control over. Mm-hmm. You have the most say. Yeah, but I, I would just thinking about the um, yeah, the, the dichotomy in in the question, which like uh, uh again, Merc- very Mercury and Gemini, but um, I almost like I would feel like. Uh, it kind of almost seems to indicate a a personality change or like a significant, like wearing many hats in life, you know? I want to, just going back to that Saturn-Moon opposition, I feel like that's an important aspect to look at in terms of feeling fixed, in terms of feeling stuck, um, especially since the Moon in Cancer is actually very fluid and very changeable and very flexible Um, The moon in Cancer is good at sort of taking the shape of its environment, but Saturn represents very much the opposite principle, um, and it tends to freeze things. Mm -hmm. Um, And with, you know, the moon representing our unconscious conditioning, you know, I could see this aspect representing a sense of being stuck in certain patterns of behavior, maybe connected to, uh, you know, what you need to feel secure, the job of the moon is to make you feel secure and Saturn in this opposition could represent a fear or negative experience um, that makes it hard to relax or feel comfortable. So I don't know, there's like an overall sense uh, with this aspect that safety depends on prevention and Saturn is maybe being kind of rigid about what the moon should be doing to prevent negative experiences from happening. Um, even if there is no danger or danger has passed, that sort of freezing effect of Saturn can just get these two planets stuck. And being in the second and eighth houses, which are um, houses that don't have a lot of visibility, um, those patterns can be harder to change because they might be harder to see. It might be harder to sort of bring, you know, whatever whatever feelings are whatever feelings are caught up in this sense of being stuck, it might be hard to sort of bring them to the surface. One thing I find about the eighth house too, is there is a, a, a like a feeling of powerlessness, you know, it gets a lot of its uh, significations from it being a succeedant house, you know, so like with diurnal motion, the eighth house is the house that will soon become the seventh house, but like a planet moving is, is looking towards the ninth house. It feels like it's on its way there. So it's a, there's like a feeling of falling backwards. And mm. uh, it being so kind of closely tied with the seventh house, it's it's a kind of a very othery house, and it doesn't make an aspect with the ascendant. So it, it like we don't always like identify very strongly with eighth house planets, at least like initially. 
So there is like a, a feeling of like a lack of control or in just waiting for something to happen. Yeah. Often negative and feeling um, I'm like stuck like kind of in, in the dark. Or like, you know, maybe um, whatever it is that had you feeling stuck in the first place has passed and you're sort of waiting for the rest of you to get caught up, you know, mm-hmm. or it's like, okay, I don't have to be stuck in this place anymore. You know, things are safe. I can move forward, but there's, you know, a part of you that's not quite ready um, for change that isn't quite there yet. And I feel like the answer, you know, there isn't sort of a, a radical answer in that scenario other than patience and self-compassion, you know, the usual pieces of advice that people would probably give you that um, the part of you that that isn't quite caught up with the rest of you yet in terms of being ready to become more flexible and move forward. It, it's a part of you that just needs some patience and some care in order to catch up. It's, it's going to take a little longer. Yeah. I think that's a general theme with succeeding houses too. Like, is there, they move slower, they kind of show up a little later because otherwise, you know, like that is a difficult aspect, but, um, with, with the moon and uh, Venus as well, you know, both very emotional kind of feeling planets. But Saturn is, you know, it's in its own sign. It's uh, in a day chart as well. It's a placement that, you know, I would still think would tend to improve over time. That sort of uh, tendency for Saturn to put the freeze on things or slow things down. Um, as it's had time to cook, it thaws it starts to thaw and let's hold, uh, let's go of its grip on, you know, whatever it's aspecting closely. Yeah. And I think the moon in cancer is always ready to change. I mean, the moon in cancer is just the pure moon. That's the moon's home sign. And the moon is very obviously, very visually about change. That's what, you know, lends the moon its symbolism is going through all of these phases um, and cancer is a cardinal sign. This is a moon that's always ready to to move forward. And Saturn might be a voice of caution, you know, about doing too much too quickly. Um, so yeah, it's like there's a bit of a standoff here between a, a very um, a part of you that wants progress, that wants to let feelings move through you, um, that's that's ready for change, and then maybe another part that's a little more resistant and inflexible. But they both have your best interests at heart. So I feel like, you know, the resolution is finding that balance between the intense desire for change and the need to exercise caution and not try to do too much at once. Yeah. I also I also really feel like you're probably making a lot more progress than you realize. Um when I see oppositions from Saturn like this, Uh, sometimes the image that comes to mind for me is like, you know, scraping gum off the bottom of a chair that's been hardened for a really, really long time. And you just kind of have to keep chipping away and chipping away. And when you're chipping away at things, you know, you don't see immediate progress. Um, You don't see it happening very quickly. So you kind of need to change your perspective and and zoom out a little in order to see the progress actually happening because it's happening over uh, you know, on a larger scale or over a longer period of time. Yeah. Uh, I really love actually that gum stuck to the bottom of the chair analogy. It's, uh, 
Uh, I've had that experience of having gum stuck to stuff. And I remember one time I figured out that if you hold a lighter up, you know, not too far from it, heat it, give it some heat, you know, it'll uh, soften and you can pull it right off there. Obviously too much heat, you know, and it'll get all gooey and, and just get even more stuck uh, all over stuff. But um, And this is, this is why Saturn prefers diurnal charts <laughs> it needs the heat yeah it's just a, a little a little bit of heat prevents it from you know turning into a a rock solid piece of gum yeah makes a lot of sense that um just like kind of having this question come up for you maggie is uh mercury you know in your first house uh in gemini ruling your ascendant on the ascendant it's you know very powerful placement Mercury is very oriented towards change, wants to change, kind of thrives on, on novelty. But there are kind of themes coming from houses that are less visible, indicating, you know, more fixidity in, in different ways, like the sun in Taurus uh, in the 12th. And even, you know, Jupiter. Yeah, not that um, I see everything uh, about the 12th house as being strictly negative or about suffering or about, you know, undoing you, but they're, uh, you know, they're themes of what is in the 12th house being not entirely visible and, you know, representing challenges. So, and even like a kind of a fixidity of the sun. What is the sun rule here? What's the, house number yeah, three. The third, which is a house of, of movement and travel, you know, your kind of everyday, you know, your day-to-day goings-on. Um, and the sun in Taurus, this is like everything that it would do, but like there could be like fixidity in your everyday environment. Like every day feels maybe like exactly the same compared to like maybe what you're more oriented towards and what, you know, you're looking for. But I could see how Mercury and Gemini and even that um, you know, theme of like signs that are right next to each other Traditionally, they're considered to be an aversion. You know, they they can work together in kind of odd ways, but they they are almost they're more opposite than an opposition in, in a sense. Like I would say that Taurus and Scorpio have more in common than Taurus and Gemini. Oh, definitely. Yeah, I mean, oppositions are, you know, it's like the difference between red and green. Red and green are opposite colors on the color wheel. Um, what's the difference between red and square? They're completely yeah. different categories. So, you know, Capricorn and Cancer or Taurus and Scorpio, they're just at opposite poles of a single spectrum, which means they have a lot in common categorically. Like two sides of the same Whereas coin. Whereas Taurus and Gemini, yeah, they are exactly two sides of the same coin. Whereas Taurus and Gemini being an aversion. Two different um, currencies. It's like apples and oranges. Yeah. It's hard to get a conversation going between them. It's interesting how Mercury, there's a lot that Mercury can't see in this chart, mm-hmm. um, which you know I can imagine might be frustrating because Mercury is flexible, especially in Gemini, is flexibility and adaptability. And Mercury is so open to new ideas and new ways of seeing things and willing to change its mind based on new information. Um, but there are all of these other factors going on sort of in the shadows in this chart that that Mercury can't see that are kind of putting a halt on, you know, what this chart wants to do. 
having both the sect light because you know maggie was born during the day so the sun is you know the the most important of the two lights in this chart and then jupiter being um the diurnal benefic and they're both in the 12th house which is a place that slows things down and breaks things down it's not a forward momentum kind of house it's trying to move through the 12th house is like trying to move through five feet of snow in the middle of the night without a flashlight yeah um nothing happens quickly in there yeah it's, it's only after like long periods of re- reflection you yes. have to really sit alone and really like i don't know there is uh something about you know the 12th and you know it being the joy of saturn it does have like a very saturn quality um where you kind of have to suffer for your gains a little bit. There is a degree of letting go. You know, it's going to sound very um, contradictory, but, you know, being a a Gemini rising with Mercury on the Ascendant, you know, you might be more receptive to this sort of thought, but (laughs) the... um, there's a degree to which, you know, you, you have to let go of what's in the 12th, but at the same time, sort of take control, but like take control of the things that you can. There's a, what is that? Um, is that a poem? called The Serenity Prayer. Yeah, The Serenity Prayer. Um, give me the strength to... Uh, to accept the things you can't change and yes. change the things you can. Yeah. To me, it seems like a very... Uh, 12th house sort of prayer but you know the 12th house is very mm-hmm. much associated with prayer there is i was taking a look at aspects of this chart that might support becoming more flexible i feel like supporting the moon and what the moon is trying to do would probably be helpful and there's this sort of like very beautiful um symmetrical support group of planets going on in this chart um the 12th house and the second house are giving each other a lot of support Mm -hmm. which is very interesting um but there is a really beautiful um mutual reception going on between the moon and jupiter um where Jupiter is in the sign where the moon exalts and the moon is in the sign where Jupiter exalts and they can see each other by a positive aspect. So they're very, and yeah, the moon's applying to Jupiter. It's yeah, it's just a a gorgeous aspect. Um, But the moon, Venus and sun and Jupiter, they're all kind of just in this nice little party, all supporting Mm -hmm. each other. Um, and you know and i was looking at the houses that these planets rule obviously um the houses in a chart contain a lot of the people in your life a lot of the relationships that you have so you know jupiter for example rules the seventh house which is partnerships um the sun rules the third house which is siblings and neighbors and people who are sort of part of your everyday routine or environment you know the grocery store clerks or people you see on the bus every day 
the 10th house is also being ruled by Jupiter, which is, um, you know, people in positions of authority. Um, the third house also represents spiritual networks and spiritual communities. So I feel like there's all this support going on between these four planets. And so there's an indication that um, reaching out to people in those relationships are things that may help to support your moon. Something keeps pop, like, popping in my head just looking at that mutual reception by exaltation with Jupiter and the moon. Jupiter being, you know, the sect benefic. You know, even in the 12th house, like Jupiter is still trying to do Jupiter. Uh, what keeps popping into my head is like good things come to those who wait. Mm. There is a strong theme uh, with that and just with Taurus in general of just Taurus, like there's a, a, it's a very receptive sign, <clears throat> and it is maybe the most fixed of the fixed signs. It's uh, fixed Earth. It's like rocks, you know, the ground that we're walking on. You don't want that to become too unstable. However much you know, maybe you personally want to see shifts and changes. There is a sort of patience that needs to be cultivated. I'd Mercury in Gemini. Is maybe not uh, the most patient kind of planet. <laughs> you know, it has a lot of strength. It's very strong in its sign, but there is, um, <clears throat> you know, it's very restless, very uh, craving new things. Almost like I'm imagining, like maybe you changing a lot, but like your environment maybe lagging behind, and maybe it doesn't seem like the changes have actually happened. Like maybe you've changed a lot more than you think. I think too, though, uh, you know, Mars. Uh, there's, you know, a trine relationship with Mars and Aquarius in the ninth. You know, it's pretty close to the MC, actually. Uh, you know, Mars is out of sect, so it's extra hot. <clears throat> with that trine, it does add, like, a lot more heat and, and energy to Mercury. Mm -hmm. Like, you might really, really want to move forward. Um, and then Mars, you know, squaring the sun, too, in Taurus. I always think of, so you think of, like, Mars... An Aquarius, like fixed air, like just this, uh, like trying to blow a boulder across a field. There's almost like a lot of momentum that, that needs to be developed to, to get it going. And Mercury in Gemini may struggle with maintaining focus long enough, maintaining the direction of the wind <laughs> long enough to, uh, concentrating it to, to, to get things moving. Yeah. Or even when it does it, it feels like this is way slower than I want it to be. Yeah. And I think, I mean, the quality of flexibility in the first place is, I mean, it makes me think about Mercury and Gemini because Mercury and Gemini tends to disperse. Um, mm. It wants to do a lot of things at once and it's generally quite capable of being successful at doing many things at one at once. It wants to change many things at once. And that kind of is the quality of flexibility is, you know, being able to change direction at, at a moment's notice, sort of unplanned. Um, and Mercury ruling your ascendant and being right on your ascendant is the most sort of descriptive of, of your personality and sort of the direction that you feel your life is headed in. So yeah, I do get that sense of contrast there where you've got this um, 
Mercury, who really is ready to just make all of these changes right now. Um, and a lot of other factors in the chart that are like, no, we need to let things stew. Yeah. yeah. What, what uh, was it included in the question? Like how, how to cultivate change? What was how, how to become more flexible? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that, I don't know the like the chart seems to indicate that, that you Maggie are quite flexible. But maybe the flexibility that needs to be cultivated is in the ability to like um to be still and patient and and and, and waiting, you know. <laughs> waiting is the, the hardest part, right? What song is that? Yeah. Um I feel like just having Taurus on, on the twelfth house is is like God, is this ever gonna uh, change? Is this ever gonna move? Is this ever gonna go forward? <laughs> well, and there's a lot of stress on those Taurus planets to move forward, yeah. which is kind of unfair to Taurus them. hates being you know, pushed not, to, <laughs> to move too. Yeah, being rushed. Not saying um, I'm I'm talking archetypally here. So just to clarify, Maggie, I'm not saying that you're being hard on your Taurus planets, but your chart is being yeah. hard on your Taurus planets, where Mars is being kind of antagonistic here and saying, hey, let's go. Yeah. Um, and kind of trying to rush those Taurus planets and putting pressure on them, which is ultimately just making them stressed. And I think that a Taurus planet, which is stressed, is actually just going to move slower. Yeah. Uh, makes me think of, um, I mean, Taurus, like the the more you try to push Taurus, the for you know the more it digs in its heels. So you think of like mm -hmm. a really tight muscle. Uh, I used to be a massage therapist, and one of the things with muscles when they're really really tense is is like you you know some. There's two ways to to address a really tight muscle. Um, there's uh, what I, I call the the beat it into submission approach, um, which some therapists do. You know they dig their elbows in there and they just you know rip and tear into that muscle until it's until it just gives up but usually much more effective and much less painful is uh soothing the muscle and and um letting it relax the other uh you know technique that that i ended up using a lot was trigger point therapy trigger point therapy is when you apply pressure to the muscle it's gentle pressure. You can't just dig your thumb in. You have to like feel it and let your thumb kind of feel each layer of the muscle relax layer by layer until you get it till you get it all the way down to the bone, you know, into into and you just you're basically choking the muscle out. You're cutting it off from its blood supply, you're cutting its oxygen supply out. And eventually the muscle just has to it's like a, a sleeper hold, you know, a choke hold <laughs> on the muscle. And then it it, it gives up. And there is something about the, I don't know, it's like being oxidized with all that fixed air Mars, like blowing on it. It's like all the approaches that Mars has to to getting getting that uh, Taurus stuff to, to let up is making Taurus, you know, dig in. So again, with the theme of, of adopting a, a more serene and relaxed approach. You get the concept of, of hurling with a ray. You know, Mars is a pretty tight square with the sun and being kind of the overcoming position 
but it's like so tight that like the sun has an opportunity to hurl a ray. Mm-hmm. It makes me think of I don't know if you're trying to like push a bowl, which just sounds like a really terrible idea, like trying to push it out of the pen, <laughs> and then it just you know you know kicks you with the like a back kick, and you know I can kill people sometimes. So. <laughs> Beware. <laughs> Beware of pushing the bowl. Not saying that that is going to kill you. Uh, if anything, I find that the, the sun doesn't hurl yeah. rays so much uh, in, in, in a violent way. Particularly not like a Taurus sun. Well, there is there is an interesting... I mean, I couldn't help thinking about metaphors of keeping bowls while looking at the Mars-Sun square mm. in this chart. The sun is in the bounds of mm-hmm. Mars. So the image of a bull in a pen, you know, the twelfth house being a state of yeah. confinement. And within that state of confinement, specifically being in the bull pen that belongs to Mars, and Mars being antagonistic towards the bull that they're keeping yeah. in the pen. But the bull still does have that power because the aspect is so close to hurl his mm-hmm. hooves every now and then when he's tired of what Mars is doing. Yeah, it's like Mars can only really keep the <laughs> bull in the pen. That's the most that it can yeah, do. Yeah, that's that's about really as much as Mars can bowl. do. No. Um, yeah, which I, I mean, I don't know how much this helps with the first question. I feel like it may be relevant to the second question about um, how a chart can account for drastic personality changes because I find that squares represent dynamic tension that often indicates a dramatic change or going from one extreme to the other. Um, and maybe, you know, this aspect represents a situation like that that has happened in Maggie's life um, where there was a really intense or extreme sort of situation that caused a huge uh, change in outlook or personality. Yeah. Uh, and just thinking that, you know, Uranus is going through Taurus right now. Hasn't quite hit Jupiter yet, but it's getting close. Might go retrograde before it hits it. So it may not hit it this year. It's Jupiter's at 16 degrees. I think Uranus is at 14. Um, you know, having some Taurus planets that are, you know, um, feeling uranus right now taurus is not you know it's a sign that's not super inclined to change uranus is like really trying to to make it happen mm-hmm. the, the change that that happens with taurus is it's the very slow uh tectonic plate use this analogy probably a million times um slow movement of tectonic plates versus you know the sudden volcanic eruption that causes like a total landscape change and it's making me think is that over the next few years does seem to to indicate that the landscape is undergoing change. There is some some resurfacing of the of the soil, you know, at the very least. Um on the restlessness. Yeah. I just feel like, yeah, there's a real sense of restlessness there that whatever is happening in the twelfth house. I need it to change. It's not changing mm-hmm. fast enough. Uranus is sitting right there on top of it, just kind of shaking things up and making it feel unsettled. Um, yeah. And 
you know, Taurus is saying like, just be patient. <laughs> yeah. And also like, want to reiterate, you know, looking, you know, if you journal um, or anything like that, that can be really helpful. And looking at journals over a long period of time um, can show you how you've probably become a lot more flexible than you used to be. You've probably made a lot more progress than you think you have. It's just happening, you know, at a rate that isn't at least, you know, for, for like the Mercury and Gemini, that's like barely perceptible because Mercury and Gemini is just changing all the time. So if, you know, something takes several years to change, Mercury and Gemini might not notice that it's changed because they're used to existing in a whirlwind, not in uh, a world where there is slow, steady progress. Just the, 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 the change that Taurus undergoes is so slow that... Um... But like, you know, Taurus does change, Taurus does move, you know, that herd of buffalo will make its way across the field. And if you're not watching it happen, you're, you know, you're not really seeing the change, but like at some point you're, you're going to turn your head and, and they'll be gone, you know, or it'll be all the way, you know, across the field. Um, you know, so maybe it, say to some degree. Maybe taking your eye off of it too. <laughs> it's getting contradictory. Uh, not focusing on on it so much. No, yeah. I, I like that. Like, I do like that because I think that is something that happens where when you're so focused on, like, I need to become more flexible, um, and you're you're watching a pot boil, <laughs> you know, and it's it the watch pot never boils, you know, and you're just standing there staring at it. Whereas if you turn your back on it for one second, it's all over the stove. <laughs> yeah. But there is, there is some, you know, the way we perceive things psychologically, we don't perceive change as we're, if we're, if we're watching it very, very carefully, we don't tend to perceive it. Yeah. That, it's agonizing. You know, you're watching the clock waiting for, you know, school yeah. to get out. You're like, yeah. oh, that's five minutes has been forever. Like, you know, whenever yeah. I'm, I'm on like a, a road trip with my son, you know, it's like every 10 minutes. Are we there yet? How far are we? Are we, are, you know, how much longer? And like, if you just take your, you know, it's what I always tell him, like, just if you pay attention to something else, we'll be there before you know it. Yeah. It's that you need to, to change your attention, what you're paying attention to, shift your focus of attention away from how long it's going to take to get mm -hmm. to your destination and focus on how many purple flowers do you see at the side of the road? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Stop and smell the roses. And you know, by you'll be so, yeah, you'll be so uh, busy counting flowers. You won't even realize you've already reached your destination. Yeah. Do we want to say a bit about what, um, change looks like in general in a birth chart or, Oh yeah, the the second part of the question, how birth charts account for, you know, drastic personality change maybe as a result of trauma or trauma recovery. One thing I'd like to point out uh about this issue with charts is that not all of a chart's potential is active all at once right from the start. It's not like you're born and everything, because the, the birth chart represents your whole life, um, the people that you meet, the events of your life, and your personality. It's the whole the, the whole picture. 
um, from beginning to end. So obviously, all of the people that you'll meet and all of the significant events of your life and all of the things that you will feel and believe and think and learn do, do not all occur at once at the moment that you're born. They occur bit by bit over the course of your life. So you know the chart shows potential for certain things to happen, um, but whether or not you know that potential is actualized um, depends on other things. I mean, you can look to transits and perfections and those kinds of techniques uh, for clues to see when parts of your chart um, become activated and become significant and might indicate a life-changing event, like uh, a placement in a birth chart um, might symbolically indicate a life-changing event like getting a specific job or meeting a specific partner that only happens once in your entire life. Um, and then that event subsequently will change, you know, your outlook on life and change other parts of your life, possibly your personality. So I think, you know, that's one of the ways that a birth chart accounts for change. My eye is rather drawn to, um, you know, the Saturn uh, Uranus conjunction. And, uh, you know, that, that one affects a, a large group of people that conjunction existed, you know, a good what, two or three years, or at least that co-presence in Capricorn. Mm -hmm. um, one that, you know, uh, Tristan and I are both part of as well. And it does, you know, point to a change. But like Saturn, you know, Saturn's there every day. You can see Saturn. Uh, Uranus pops in and makes a big change and then pops out. And, uh, you know, most of the time Saturn is doing Saturn. But that Uranus conjunction, it's like when it gets triggered or activated, it sort of points to, you know, a big shift. Saturn in Capricorn kind of representing walls and boundaries. Uranus kind of um, pointing to, you know, like breaking down some walls uh, of some kind. Uh, I believe that, you know, that conjunction, of uh, course, coincided with um, the breaking down of the, the Berlin Wall. Uh, and, you know, Saturn uh, you know, ruling your ninth house and Mars being in your ninth house with that square, like maybe like trying to beat down the door <laughs> or trying to trying to enact that change with the Taurus planets. I mean, there could be like a radical change in um, the belief system or, you know, the spiritual stance. Yeah, I feel like anything, any sort of transit activating Saturn because of that Saturn-Uranus conjunction being so close would perhaps indicate dramatic changes to uh, belief system and worldview, which is represented by the ninth house, which Saturn rules, um, or major changes to significant partnerships, um, the kinds of partnerships where there are shared resources, um, where a lot is shared. And we're, you know, we're going, we're in a Saturn Uranus square right now. And I feel like in a lot of the readings I've done recently, a lot of people with, you know, significant with the hard aspects with uh, Uranus and Saturn in their charts are seeking readings out, you know, <laughs> um, this is um, like a time where that's being activated. So, I mean, you, you might be like, you might be kind of in it right now, but like those uh, changes being kind of probably more unseen, like you're, you're maybe not going to really know 
when it's happening or not realize that it's happening. Or they come out of nowhere. Yeah, there's a, they're extra unexpected because, well, at least the eighth house changes, the ninth house changes, you might be able to see coming a little more clearly, but the eighth house being so concealed represents things you wouldn't, you really wouldn't mm-hmm. expect. Yeah, there's something about um, things moving very slow. What's that word I'm looking for? You know, when things, uh, I already kind of said this, but when things are moving slow and steady, you know, you can take your eye off them. You're, you're maybe, you can, you may not, <laughs> maybe you should. Um, and then when you, when you check them again, you know, that's when you really see the changes that are worth monitoring. Like I, when I look at my, um, you know, my stock portfolio, it's better not to look at it every single day because then you get wrapped up in like the everyday movements, you know, or the fact that it's not moving, um, but then if you check it like, you know, once a month, as long as you're not doing like day trading, uh, you almost get more perspective on it. Like you, you see the more of the long-term kind of trend uh, or picture more, more clearly. So, I mean, it's very relevant to discussing the eighth house. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> wonder if you have a uh, stock portfolio, Maggie. If you do, it might be in for some change. Yeah, yeah it might be a, a roller coaster. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, With Uranus in the eighth. <laughs> well, that was that conjunction also happened during a global stock market crash between late '87 and early '88. Ah, Saturn and Uranus yeah. conjunction uh, happened around Black Monday. So, anyway. <laughs> That's making it you were very you were born, yeah. You were you were born around that time. That was the the general atmosphere that you were born into, Maggie. Um, you're born into a time of change. You're born into a time of global stock markets crashing for no apparent <laughs> reason. <laughs> yeah, but that preceded, you know, what uh, if you ever watched The Matrix, uh, you would know for a fact that the the 1990s was the peak of human civilization. So. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Sometimes you need a little uh, shake up before you you get the the that smooth ride of the 1990s. Go back. <laughs> um, to to ground things a little, you know, to to come down to earth, away from from Uranus, who is very not down to earth. I actually have an example from my own life and my own chart where there has been a very drastic personality change. Um, and I can see how it plays out in my chart. So I find, I think I mentioned this earlier. I started touching on this question a little bit when I was answering the first question. Um, and I was talking about the square that Maggie has going on between Mars and the sun and Jupiter. Mm -hmm. Um, very, very, very intense close square between Mars and the sun and squares representing extremes um, and extreme change. So I have a similar configuration in my chart, but it is between Mercury and Saturn. Uh, I have Saturn in Capricorn overcoming my Mercury in Aries through a square. And Saturn has an inhibiting or delaying or limiting effect. Mercury has to do with communication. Um, 
I was an extremely chatty child. Uh, I was frequently kicked out of my classrooms because if it was getting too chaotic in the class, sending me to the office was actually a good solution for the teacher because I was just, I would not shut up. And at some point, um, you know, maybe when I was around 11 or 12, I started to develop social anxiety disorder. And over the course of my teenage years and up into my young adulthood, I actually had selective mutism where I, I physically could not speak. Um, I could speak to certain people uh, within my inner circle who I had established like a strong amount of comfort with. Um, but I, you know, take me to the grocery strike. I could not physically speak to the cashier, which is a very Saturn square Mercury. Saturn is literally silencing Mercury. Um, so that was a pretty extreme shift from, you know, me being the noisiest kid who had ever existed to having selective mutism. And then, you know, I did some therapy and started working, you know, at coffee shops where I had to talk to people every day. Uh, and the result is that like, here I am doing a podcast. So, you know, there's some huge shifts uh, in my personality and my behavior over the course of my life that you can really see with that aspect. And um, the chart is actually indicating going between those extremes because the square, the nature of the square is about going between extremes. Mm -hmm. Yeah nature of mars this is the nature of mars squares mars. are squares are the marsy aspects if you ever want to understand a square it's uh a conversation going on between two planets and that conversation is very marsy <laughs> it's very tense <laughs> doesn't yeah but it, it yeah definitely indicates change you know um mm -hmm. mars often uh, with rapid change yeah yeah and just that going from one extreme to the next, mm -hmm. like the, the pendulum swinging from one end to the other. And I think, you know, for a lot of people who experience extreme personality changes, that pendulum, you know, as, as you get older and, you know, come to understand yourself better, that pendulum may start to settle more in the middle. Um, those squares might start to become more manageable as you become you know, as you develop skills or you get tools for uh, helping you manage extremes. Saturn, you know, representing like old age maturity. Mm -hmm. uh, once you, you know, as you get older, you become more like Saturn, which may involve being a little grouchier, uh, <laughs> a little less um, open to, to new things. You also, you know, achieve more stability. More, more, um, more yep. solid and, and more wise. And I think if, you know, Maggie, you were specifically addressing trauma and trauma recovery. Um, and I think, I mean, if you're, if you're processing a traumatic event and you're looking at your chart um, to kind of help you process that traumatic event and maybe find some symbols um, that resonate with what happened, you know, a big square like that might be um, a set of symbols that's appropriate, you know, or it's just like this very extreme, very sudden experience that causes this huge shift and then um, sends you on this journey of recovery, which 
also really dramatically changes you, like the journey itself really changes you. Yeah. And I mean, um, on the topic of seeing change in charts, like usually you, you can, um, <clears throat> there's all kinds of different timing techniques. Tristan and I tend to use, you know, transits and uh, annual perfections mostly. You get like zodiacal releasing, you get um, Vidara uh, periods, probably not pronouncing that correctly. Or even just simpler ones, like kind of like the, was it the planetary ages uh, or years, right? It's like so the sun is 18 years, Mars is 15. Oh yeah, the the greater and lesser years. Yeah, if, if that was like the focus of a reading, like you can you can dig that stuff out and get like a sense of like when this some certain changes are most likely to happen. I do want to say something else on the subject of accounting for personality change in a chart. Um, everything in astrology has multiple layers of meaning. Uh, each planet and house in a chart represents several topics and they can manifest in hundreds of possible ways. So how the symbolism of a particular placement is relevant to your life um, can change significantly. Mm -hmm. the, the core symbolism remains relevant, but how it sort of shows up or manifests may change. So like just to give, you know, this isn't a personality example, but a practical example um, that comes from your chart, Maggie, you've got Mars in the ninth house. Um, you know, one, one year of your life that might look like being in a really stressful, high pressure university program. Um, another year, Mars in the ninth house might look like joining an unusual religious movement or an alternative religious movement. Um, there are so many ways that, you know, when you blend the symbolism of Mars with the topics of the ninth house that that can manifest. And it, there might be some like core symbolism that remains consistent there for much of your life, but what it actually looks like on a practical level is dramatically different all the time. And like, you know, I think maybe there's a, there's a broader discussion too um, around this question about how you conceptualize astrology. Like, what do you think it's for? How, how do you think it works? There's no one right answer to any of those questions. Um, there are a lot of ways to frame astrology and to apply it to your life. Um, I tend to think of it more as an introspective or spiritual tool rather than a thing that's like dictating your life in a very specific way. Um, so, you know, it's and it's very complex and very layered. So I think it remains a valuable tool for meditation on yourself and your life, regardless of how much you change. And then, you know, it, it responds, it, the birth chart itself is static, but the planets are continually moving. Um, and so those techniques of, you know, looking at the relationship between these cycles of time and how they relate to your birth chart, um, can also make your birth chart sort of dynamic and active, even though it, it remains the same, but it's always interacting with the planets as they're moving. And so it's also like still interacting with something that's in a constant state of change and flux and different things are being brought out of it at different times. Indeed. Well, and I guess I, Kyle, you use, um, you use secondary progressions in your work, yeah. which actually does, you are looking at how, 
your chart would change if you sort of animated it through time during the first few months of your life. I, it's not a technique I use. It's something that I want to learn about in the near future. But I find that kind of interesting because it, it makes the birth chart a lot less static. Absolutely. And I think that is maybe my main use of secondary progressions. Um, it's maybe not my primary te timing technique, uh, but what it really does help you do is look at the, the chart as a moving story, get a sense of like, you know, where you land in that story. And you, you know, you do have an interesting thing happening uh, with, with your chart, having taken a, a little peek at your, you know, your secondary progressions. Um, you know, we didn't get uh, really into, you know, the, the Venus um, opposition with Saturn. <laughs> Spent a lot of time so we can go into uh, too much detail, but like that one is, uh, you know, Venus is about to station retrograde um, kind of as it's hitting that opposition with Saturn, and then it's going to go back into Gemini. So, I mean, there there is a symbolic story of change. You know, maybe Venus hitting something it doesn't like and wanting to go back, maybe reassess, revisit, and maybe like a nicer way that the story can kind of look is, is you know, it's kind of go back into your first house, somewhere where you're able to get like a, a little bit of clarity on, you know, whatever the difficult event was. And um, it can potentially be becoming a more empowering, you know, serving a more uh, empowering uh, stance or perspective, you know, on life. But always hard to get a real uh, sense of the story without, you know, you spilling all your secrets. <laughs> yeah, Maggie, tell us all your yes, secrets. Tell us, all. tell us everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's, there's always a limit, you know, to what we can do when we don't have somebody in the room with us to tell us about how their life matches up or doesn't match up with what we're saying about their chart. Yeah. But yeah. That, that, uh, progression is interesting. Um, just indicating a point somewhere in Maggie's life where there is a shift, um, sort of like going back to a different way of being. Yeah. I, yeah, I think you're not you're not so stuck and fixed as, as maybe you think, Maggie. That I guess <laughs> that's like my that's my takeaway. It's uh, a lot more movement and change happening. Yeah, and you have a lot of. I mean, you do have a lot of power and control over that change. I think you can change. You know, yeah, the most about yourself. I think you can change. You know, your environment may lag behind, but yeah, change is always inevitable. And I really think that you know you. When the changes do come, you would have a, a strong uh, ability to adapt to them. Yeah, and that, I mean, having the ruler of your first house in your first house and so strongly placed, it's a, it's a nice thing to see in a chart. And it's a good because your first house represents you and the planet that rules it, you know, represents your agency within the chart. That's a good suggestion of willpower, like the ability mm -hmm. to change oneself. Do you feel like maybe it's uh, it's time to move on? Yeah. With that, we should should move on to the second question. All right. So <clears throat> our uh, second question comes from uh, St. James Bath on Reddit. She asks, I recently came across midlife crisis transits. Uh, Pluto square Pluto, 
Neptune square Neptune, and you know maybe Uranus square Uranus. My natal Neptune is in Sagittarius, Pluto in Libra, and Uranus in Sagittarius. I'm 38, and I feel like I've been going through an absolute reckoning. So, uh, it, it, this is an interesting question because there does seem to be a distinctive pattern, you know, with uh, those outer planet hard aspects to the natal position occurring often uh, like around the same time. The um, Pluto square Pluto and Uranus opposite. Uranus. It all seems to happen at that, you know, that late 30s, early 40s period. I find it interesting that often uh, the outer planets point to a lot of generational themes. It's not that they don't affect you personally. Say almost like the more it's aspecting your personal planets, the more you're affected by the the sort of generational patterns and trends. But the midlife crisis, it 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 is uh, it's like a universal experience. To, to some degree. You know, everybody has kind of a different one, but uh, it, it is, uh, it's a prevalent cultural, uh, <laughs> you know, universal sort of theme and experience. Um, it happens like around that time. So there is a lot to cover. Try to keep it focused on those particular transits. So we'll start maybe with like the Uranus opposition, Uranus, and you know, Uranus uh, kind of representing, just starting maybe on a collective generational level, you get innovation, of rebellion, right? You know, maybe what um, a particular age group is willing to fight for and what, what they're maybe trying to rebel against. Uh, maybe like where the, the big themes of, of change and sort of, um, sometimes I like to think of like molting with <laughs> Uranus, like uh, when you shed some skin off. You know, what are we trying to kind of get off our backs? And I find, you know, with the Uranus opposition, it, it's interesting because like that, around that age, um, that like late 30s, early 40s age, uh, we can vary a bit. You do get people tending to start to become a little more conservative, if anything. But Uranus opposition can kind of coincide with the, the waxing Saturn square, which is um, a lot of traditions kind of considered the, the maturity of Saturn uh, when, you know, you kind of get your, your, your full like Saturnian wisdom. And it's, it's kind of like, uh, you know, what's being... Uh, rebelled against are, are the big themes of innovation are kind of uh, contrary or, or opposite to to what they were during your time, back in your day, you know? <laughs> it's even Maybe when you start to think in those terms. But you know, that also kind of points to that, that oppositional nature of it too, because there's kind of a push-pull in opposite directions. Like, can I still change? Yeah, can I still change? Is, is it too late? And is it realistic? So you're kind of bringing a little bit more maturity and, uh, and like the opposition being the nature of Saturn. You get kind of like a pull and a drive to change, but I, internally or externally, like opposing viewpoints on, on how to, to go about that. So, you know, you sometimes get people doing weird stuff around that age, um, particularly because, it, I mean, it does coincide too often with the Pluto square and the Neptune square. So, I mean... But just with Uranus, I mean, what do you tend to, to think of when you see the Uranus, opposite Uranus? When I think of outer planet transits in general, um, I really think of significant generational concerns more than anything, where outer planets have relevance to a sort of era in history. 
you know, Neptune spends 14 years in a sign, Pluto spends between 12 and 31 years in a sign. So they really mark out particular generations. You know, with Uranus maybe representing more the ways in which the generation born under that Uranus sign breaks away from the previous generation. That's where you see that, you know, drastic cultural changes and political changes and yeah, changes in priorities. Days. And yeah, yeah, exactly. That's where you get that kind of thing. So yeah, I, I mean, what you're saying makes a lot of sense to me that on a personal level, um, the Uranus opposition would be, you know, the individual sort of uh, confronting that, um, where, you know, they are part of a generation that represented a radical shift away from the previous generation's way of living. And now you're old enough to contend with younger generations whose way of living is a radical shift away from yours. And that can certainly, you know, provoke a lot of soul searching and, and self-questioning. You know, it's something that's just coming to my mind right now that I haven't given like a ton of thought to, but um, you, you do, especially nowadays, nowadays with these, you know, these hooligans running around, um, you do get a lot of uh, kind of displacement too. Um, in the kind of current um, economic environment, there is more of an expectation that you will change careers, you know, at some point in your life. You know, industries kind of, uh, you know, we're not all coal miners anymore and you do get people who have been coal miners most of their lives upset that maybe like that uh, line of work is is increasingly unavailable or um, being cast aside. So there's a uh, time to, uh, you know, you get, like reinvention themes uh, like reinvention because the world has changed so much in that time. But I, I would often tend to think that, um, you know, they're not going to always show up as significant for everyone. Um, and it's not always the first place I look, but I would say the more tightly, you know, you have outer planets configured two planets in your chart, you know, the more relevant, uh, it kind of, they seem to, to be in your chart, the more you're going to maybe see manifestations of that, of that show up. Like planets more connected to the personal planets in your chart, as opposed to the outer planets in your chart. Yeah. So, I mean... I mean, I'd be looking at like, okay, is Uranus aspecting personal planets? You know, there's, there's so much to look at, so many layers. But, you know, kind of for the purposes of the question, um, and because it is useful, like trying to zero in on like what maybe those transits specifically do, it's interesting uh, and useful because they do something uh, <laughs> and can vary a lot. I think on one level, you know, you just kind of you sometimes see just uh, um, an emphasis on what that planet is doing in the chart already. So like in your case uh, with St. James Bath, um, she did share her chart with us. As we said, Pluto and Libra, um, Neptune in Sagittarius and Uranus in Sagittarius. So with your chart, Scorpio rising at about 11 degrees with Mars in Libra in the 12th. Uh, the sun in Cancer in the ninth, uh, with the moon in Cancer also in the ninth. Now Pluto being in Libra with Mars, and you uh, you're kind of being in the midst of the that Pluto square. That is maybe where um, I would put the emphasis for you personally in terms to with uh, outer planet transits. 
while that Neptune square is um, actually also pretty tight right now. It's, um, where's Neptune at right now? Like 22, 23 degrees? Yeah, 22. Yeah. So, I mean, it's applying and they, they both move so slow. They go back and forth and back and forth. So, we're, you know, we're talking about like themes that kind of develop over a long period of time. Um, but like Pluto, square Pluto, you get uh, get Pluto themes, right? <laughs> what, what are those? You know, you get obsession, uh, fixations. Pluto tends to exaggerate and distort and kind of pull things in, in more extreme directions. And I think that is, you know, Pluto B becomes like a very, very, very useful generational planet because it kind of points to that that thing that's just weird and different about, you know, an age group. Pluto has kind of an eccentric orbit. So the Pluto and Scorpio generation was maybe the, the shortest of the, the Pluto generations. So, I mean, I would be looking at, uh, you know, what are things that are really affecting that particular age group right now? And, you know, to what degree do you fit into that? Yeah, and I think of, you know, the Pluto and Libra generation in particular is sort of um, like between Gen Y and early millennials, um, which, you know, that was people who were growing up from that generation were part of this transition from the pre-internet era to the internet era. You know, this is the, the generation that first populated MySpace. And I kind of, I love that uh, the word reckoning is in the question. That's just such a good, <laughs> yeah. reckoning is such a good outer planet transit word. Um, and so I feel like, you know, this entire generation um, is, as as we're getting closer to middle age, we're approaching a sort of reckoning and that, you know, maybe the um, cultural or technological or political events um, that shaped our generation, those events are also starting to come to a head and having a bit of a reckoning. I think social media is definitely going to be going through a reckoning of its own that will intensify in the coming years um, that you know we're, we're really going to be feeling as people who are kind of uh, there for the beginning of that transition to this new way of socializing and connecting with each other. Yeah. And just say a couple of quick things about Pluto and Libra in general that I find interesting kind of just as a theme, you know, in the generation, because it's going to play out very differently for, for everyone. Libra has a tendency to, to want to, to kind of bridge and, and build, uh, you know, find harmony, you know, it's Venus ruled. Um, let's kind of see, I find that I, you know, personally, and just my general perspective of that age group is that they're really cool, you know, <laughs> that they're, uh, they're usually easy to get along with. You don't really feel like they're, um, being a Pluto and Scorpio, they seem to be very, um, open to whatever new is happening. Um, they don't seem to think that like their generation is superior, uh, or inferior to, to anyone else's that they seem to be a little more receptive or, or a little more, um, just kind of down, just kind of cool. Uh, I don't know, <laughs> easy to get along with. There's like a, a kind of a youthfulness too. I, I, I just notice more more broadly. Um, I kind of feel, uh, you know, Pluto tending to like exaggerate and distort um, things to some degree or, or just kind of bring out 
the extremes, you know, of a sign that uh, where we are kind of now, I don't know, 40, I feel like I've heard a lot of people say that like 40 is the new 30. You can be 40 and still be cool, <laughs> which, you know, wasn't always the case. I feel like that's a more accepted concept. Uh, and I always think Libras are cool. You know, Libras, like, they know how to, like, they always have their kind of finger on the pulse of of whatever is cool at any given given time. So I would think that um, generationally, Pluto tending to exaggerate, you know, th- there could be, you know, themes of, like, am I? Am I still cool? You know, maybe an intensification of that desire, maybe a, a clashing or a coming to realize, you know, being Pluto being in Capricorn, Saturn ruled, uh, which has uh, the themes of time and decay and like the limitations of time could be like a almost like an existential fear uh, of aging that could come up, um, wanting to hold on to to um, the thing I keep thinking of is, is that I can still be cool. There's, there's youth, more to that. You're trying to hang youth, on to yeah. trying to hang on to youth. Yeah, I can still party. You know which may or may not be a a problem. Um, But maybe for you specifically, Mars. You got both malefics present with Pluto in the 12th house there. Yeah, and Saturn, you know, being exalted and of the sect in favor, it's it's not as as difficult, the the more challenging planet. And I always get this this theme with Saturn in the 12th house. Uh, Saturn being in its joy, and it doesn't mean that it makes the 12th house happy. Um, or that Saturn, you know, that everything is now great and perfect in the twelfth house because Saturn's there. But it, it it's almost like uh, I don't know. It's like being um on a sinking ship. Or on, uh, I was watching Die Hard the other day, right? And you know, the terrorists are not really the terrorists; they're robbers. They show up in the building and they you know hold everybody hostage, and you know they kill the owner of the company and everything. But, you know, who happens to be there? Bruce fucking Willis. He's there to save the day. He knows what to do. You know, he's an he's a New York cop. He's not one of these like California, L.A. cops. Like he knows how to get gritty and dirty or whatever. Uh, but Bruce Willis just happens to be there. And I think kind of think of that, um, you know, Saturn being there in the 12th house uh knows how to save the day to some degree or how to make the best of those 12th house experiences, um, which I, I think tends to lead to um, potentially more constructive outcomes, especially with being in a day chart and <clears throat> being in Libra in its exaltation. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on on the 12th house Saturn? On the 12th house? <laughs> I always have thoughts on the twelfth house. I always have thoughts on Saturn too. Those are really those are my main topics. <laughs> yeah. I'm just gonna start doing readings now where it's nothing but I look at your twelfth house. Yeah, and I look at your malefics and I look at nothing else in your chart. Mm-hmm. Um I think with Pluto squaring the twelfth house and everything that's in there. I just I can't get over how appropriate the word reckoning is. I, I that is um, such a, that's a really, Pluto word. Yeah, specifically even. It's a Pluto word. It's a Saturn word mm-hmm. for sure. Um, Saturn is, you know, I mean, it's a bit of a Mars word too. And it's definitely a 12th house word. I mean, the 12th house is the end of things. It is the judgment card. 
in a tarot deck. This is where the story ends and things fall apart to get ready for the next part of the cycle. Mm. Um, so I think when you've got Pluto squaring a bunch of planets, you know, Pluto included in your 12th house, there can be that sense of an era coming to an end of things dissolving and sort of the, the consequences of whatever Mars and Saturn have done um, in your life in the last several years are sort of being realized now with Pluto coming in and activating them. Yeah, I think that um, just even you using the word reckoning uh, or St. James, it's hard for me to say, hey, you St. James Bath, but um, you know who I'm <laughs> referring to. Uh, the fact that you know you use the word reckoning in, in the question uh, maybe kind of clues me in personally and interesting too that like you have a sense of you know the consequences maybe catching up um, and that having you know kind of a twelfth house uh, theme. I mean, twelfth house can be kind of like where you know we tend to get ourselves into trouble a little bit, uh, often with, with the first house. Also, stuff we neglect. Yeah. That, that you know you didn't take care of um and uh you know having your first house ruler there uh definitely not always you know it's not the end of the world um it just kind of clues you in though that uh one of the things that maybe you have to be careful about is doing stuff that's going to get you into trouble right and i in this case don't hate that that mars you know in libra is with saturn you know, we don't always like to see Mars and Saturn together, but Mars can have a bit of a hard time in Libra. It's a little, um, you know, more socially focused than it wants to be, which, you know, can be a good thing. But Libra, uh, Saturn being there, it's not the ruler, but it is, you know, the exaltation. It can offer Saturn some, Mars some guidance, maybe guidance that Mars doesn't like. Uh, you know, that restraining quality of Saturn might be, you know, overall good for Mars, for you while, you know, maybe not altogether enjoyable and kind of the, the Pluto square and Pluto being with those planets could feel like maybe things uh, that you've done in the past, maybe your lifestyle uh, is needing to um, like an intense realization or awareness of, of the, these things that, that need to change. And things that need to be let go of. Yeah. Let letting go. go is such a big 12th house theme. Absolutely. Letting go of the past of, recognizing things that don't work anymore or that perhaps never did work mm -hmm. and just throwing them out. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that is maybe why Saturn does so well. Part of the reason that Saturn does so well in the 12th house or, or you know, has its joy there. Again, not making things happy, but it can sort. Uh, like this is, you know, this is something I don't need. This is something I do. can kind of sort through. The, the things that you do need to let go. And sometimes I think of, I love like the Fallout series of video games. I don't know, like the, the idea of like <laughs> rebuilding after the apocalypse. Oh yeah, that's good. Oh yeah, that's great stuff. Like Saturn in the 12th, like to some degree, it's maybe what's still standing, but you know, also like knowing what to do with the things that um, are still standing uh, and being able to kind yeah. of rebuild in the rubble. I would think that, you know, this could be a time where those themes are becoming relevant. Again, hard to say without specifics, but generally, yeah. I mean, um, Neptune too 
generally with like the Neptune square, which often comes the same time as the Pluto square, right, right around the same time, same kind of decade span, usually a little closer. You know, Neptune's associated with kind of the popular imagination, collective ideals, and uh, illusions, um, delusions in some cases, more negatively. And I don't think in your case, you know, you're going to get that Uranus opposition at the same time because of, you know, Uranus is at like one degree Sagittarius. So um, that's not going to come for, what, another seven or eight years when Uranus gets into Gemini. But when those two are kind of paired, you know, it's like, oh, I want to do something really different. But <laughs> you do get uh, stories of, of people in their middle, like that, that midlife crisis doing something rash uh, is maybe not super well thought out. Maybe getting the idea that they can do something that, that they can't, you know, a bit of that Neptune confusion, like buying buying a, a red, you know, sports car that they can't afford because they want to feel young again. Yeah, the uh, Uranus opposite Uranus transit will start for St. James Bath in 2025. Um, and that will also be Uranus opposite Neptune, but Neptune is at 25 degrees of Sagittarius in their chart. So um, that would be quite a while. Yeah. And, uh, you know, especially with Uranus being so early in, in the sign of Sagittarius, like the Pluto square being a little more traditionally oriented, Tristan and I tend to look at the sign-based aspect, not as much with outer planets, but it's like once Pluto got into Capricorn, the Pluto square started to cook, you know, it started to, to get some traction and, and, you know, it's maybe even slowly, you know, manifesting in things over the, over the last, you know, decade or so that maybe starting to manifest that you're, you're having a reckoning with, but, um, I do have a, a good example, uh, chart that I dig into a little bit just to give an example of, you know, what these kinds of outer planet transits can, can look like. So, you know, I was looking for a chart that had at least one, but a couple, ideally all three, but that's might be asking for a lot um, of those outer planets being very prominently placed. Um, and what I did find was uh, Michael Fassbender's birth chart. He has uh, he's a Sagittarius rising with Neptune pretty closely on the ascendant, looks like within two or three degrees, and Pluto in Libra right on his midheaven, like exactly, which uh, I feel like just fits <laughs> on its own so well with just Michael Fassbender, who he is and, and what he's known for. Uh, one of the things I always noticed about Michael Fassbender is that like he can be anybody. He's like a chameleon, you know, he can play anybody. Uh, and I often didn't even know that it was Michael Fassbender playing that character until later. I was like, wait, that's Michael Fassbender? You know, he doesn't he doesn't look like Michael Fassbender. Oh, now I see it, you know, like that Neptune kind of uh, chameleon. Yeah, I was, I was startled to see him cast as Carl Jung in a dangerous <laughs> yeah. method. And then you see him and he, like, has an amazing performance. Yeah. But just looking at him, he would not be the first person I would think to pick to cast for that role. Mm -hmm. And then yeah, with Pluto on his MC, he even just like shows up and just like 
in his t- the titles of the movies he's in, like a dangerous method, you know, like oh, they're all blood and danger, and lurid, and hunger and shame, and, yeah, and, yeah, yeah, oh yeah, digging into the very yeah, Pluto. Yeah. And uh, what is interesting about Michael Fassbender and his career and Pluto, the Pluto Square, um, which you know Pluto's been in Capricorn since what two thousand eight. Yep, um, and. You know, it's going to gain in strength and what it's doing uh, kind of the closer that square gets. And because it's so, it's, you know, not only is it right on his MC, uh, his son is in Aries on the IC. So Pluto's like uh, very, it's opposing, you know, his son. So, I mean, it's, you know, Pluto has a lot of influence on him, on him personally. And you often see that with people who, you know, embody uh, a lot of the qualities of their generation. Um, I believe Kurt Cobain uh, had... Pluto on his ascendant and opposing uh, his son in the seventh in Pisces, Pluto and Virgo. And he became uh, a grunge icon. The themes of, of that age group and that generation, you know, were very prominent for him. I kind of lived him out. But anyway, I noticed kind of just looking at like the roles that he chose and just his overall career, the closer that that Pluto square got, going exact which i believe was like around 2013 is like it almost becomes less important you know when exactly that happens with like pluto or neptune or even uranus because they go back and forth over the same point so much you know he, his roles got really intense and really really dark uh more more and more so there's also kind of like extremes yeah there too. Yeah, like it really starts in 2008. <laughs> yeah. Pluto goes into Capricorn and he plays the protagonist in Hunger. Yeah. Which is a very, very dark, heavy movie. And he was even like, he was willing to go to extremes for that role. Like, he, how much yeah. weight did he lose? Like 40 or 50 pounds. I don't know. He went down to like a 600 calorie per day diet just for the role. You know, it's like how devoted he was to, to you know, capturing that character. But that's pretty intense. That's, you know, that's, uh, that's, I mean, that's what he brings to his roles in general, but it's also like what he's known for and that MC. And then uh, I think, you know, it kind of culminated, I mean, his career really picked up though too, wouldn't you say? Like that was, oh yeah, you know, that's when I feel like I saw, you know, Michael Fassbender was, and everything good or that Michael Fassbender was in it that meant like oh this is going to be interesting yeah, I feel like it was after Inglorious Bastards for me which was 2009 so a mm, year into Pluto yeah. and Capricorn that was when he really came up on my radar and I started noticing him in all kinds of movies and then you know he was in Prometheus and yeah, Prometheus. 2012 he was on my radar and he was in the X-Men movies yeah, it was really that mid, you know, between 2010 and 2017, he was like really on my radar. Mm-hmm. Also interesting, Michael Fassbender, you know, he has a Neptune on his ascendant and that Neptune square started to go exact, I want to say around kind of like the main um, years of that, like 2015, 2016 pretty tight by 2017 and uh in 2016 as neptune was transiting his fourth house he started to pursue uh, a childhood dream of his 
just to be a race car driver, uh, auto racer. Which, you know, in a lot of uh, cases, maybe for most people, like I'm 40 or so and I want to be a race car driver, maybe not realistic for most people. Um, maybe a little fantastic, a little idealistic. Uh, but for Michael Fassbender, you know, somebody who, who maybe has a little more um, agency to do that, more of the resources that you, you would require. But um, 2016, he started training. And then in 2017, he did his, his first race, Sagittarius, that kind of larger than life uh, experiences and kind of fast movement, you know? I want to be a race car driver. <laughs> seems very uh, uh, Sagittarius to me. I'm just uh, scrolling through his um, filmography and in 2016, sort of as that year or Neptune Square was peaking. He played in this movie called The Light Between Oceans, <laughs> the description of which is it's a it's a romance and a drama and the description is a lighthouse keeper and his wife living off the coast of western Australia raise a baby they rescue from a drifting rowing boat. <laughs> and like the poster for the movie is just like this couple standing in the ocean. <laughs> It's very Neptunian. <laughs> like Neptune and Pisces even. It's like, uh, like the, the Neptune square came along and he was like, I guess I'll take a little bit of a break from all these very Pluto roles and, you know, act in a romantic drama where there's all this like soft lighting and <laughs> water. <laughs> I, I don't know what is his upcoming, uh, what kind of roles does he have coming up? Well, he's got one coming up in a comedy, but he's also got one coming up in like a, you know, a movie that's based off of a graphic novel about a serial killer, which is a more Pluto on the Midheaven, typical of Michael Fassbender <laughs> kind of role for sure. Yeah. But <laughs> I feel like, I don't know, I, I think his roles are going to, I'd be really, I'm going to be really fascinated to watch, you know, maybe when Pluto gets into like Aquarius uh, and Neptune gets into Aries, you know start to see him like embodying yeah. different versions of of those two planets you know which yeah. is you know might do a more of a pluto and aquarius kind of role as opposed to like a uh i mean it is another saturn ruled, ruled pluto but i can't even i think we've been going too long for me to to imagine what what that might be like but i i love the what was the movie called i don't know the, the Rescue a baby from from the ocean. <laughs> I'm oh, in a boat. Let me. I have to find it again. It like was something house, about places. space between oceans or something. Space between oceans. Twenty six. The light between the oceans. Light between oceans. It's the most Neptunian title I've ever heard. Like <laughs> Pisces, that's insane. Even like you get a baby. Fourth house. Uh, I don't know. Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's a it's about starting a family during, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. Fourth house transit. <laughs> anyway, so I I guess what we're saying here is that if St. James Bath is an actor, pay attention <laughs> yeah. to the roles they're getting during these transits. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it might <laughs> <laughs> might find some yeah. some changes in the calls they're getting from their agent. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing is like his life is he's such a personal, uh, so private, you know, uh, that he, 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 it's hard to say what it's really, 
how it might be affecting him personally. But, uh, you know, you are going to see like more obvious, maybe um, more obvious manifestations with people who, you know, are embodying those planets, you know, a a little more um, tangibly, you know, like when they have them on an angle. But yeah, Um, unless you have any more thoughts on that one, Tristan. Nope, I'm I'm starting to fade. <laughs> yeah, my brain is also uh it's no more no more words. <laughs> yeah, there there are no more words. Thank you so much to our listeners for submitting your fantastic questions and for being so open about your charts and transits and how those experiences are going for you. And just before we wrap up, is there anything you'd like to plug, Kyle? I would like to plug my, uh, uh, as always, um, you can book a consultation with me on uh, my website, kylepierceastrology.com. Been on a bit of a hiatus with uh, Killer Cosmos, but planning on coming um, out with a bit of a different style episode, uh, like a broad look at World War II just some weird and interesting astrology associated with it. And I am also actually trying to, you know, publishing some, you know, more regular astrological material. Uh, I'm starting to free up some, some time in my schedule for that. So you can check out my Instagram at Kyle Pierce underscore astrology and, um, you know, see some of that stuff. And you can find me at badsignastrology.ca where I am available to be booked for birth chart consultations. Um, I work on Wednesdays, Fridays, and Saturdays. Um, but if there's a different day that works better for you, please feel free to email me. Um, and you can find me on Instagram at Bad Sign Astrology. Well, thanks everyone for listening. And yes, uh, reiterate, thank um Thank you, Maggie, for your question and sharing your chart. And thank you, St. James Bath, for your question sharing your chart. Until next time. If you have a question you'd like to hear answered on the Astrology Hotline, uh, please email us at astrologyhotlinepod at gmail.com. Attention listeners, Astrology Hotline is at war. At war with unanswered astrology questions. We have the weapons, we have the training, but to achieve ultimate victory, we need your help. I want you to take out your phone, open up Apple Podcasts, subscribe to Astrology Hotline, crush all five stars, and rain down a righteous review of furious satisfaction. I want you to open up Spotify, subscribe to Astrology Hotline, and launch one high-speed thumb of flaming death at that five-star rating. And I want you to find the gnarliest, most insidious astrology question you can find. Email it to astrologyhotlinepod at gmail.com so we can slaughter it mercilessly on the show. Together, we can conquer astrology one question at a time.